one of the things about being a Christian church is that indeed you are our family. I like to pull it on Whittles. Indeed, you are family with all the other Christians all around the world. And the music that is sung in one part of town belongs to the whole family. Right? So we are singing something by Elizabeth Prentice there, More Love Than Thee, O Christ. We come a little bit forward to 2011, Sovereign Grace, Behold Our God. And we go back, for me at least, to my mama's church. Woke up this morning with my mind. Stayed on Jesus. That's a good place to keep your mind, beloved. It's a good place to keep your mind. So all of God's song truth belongs to all of God's saved people. Amen? Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn with me to 2 Corinthians. Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. His second letter to them. We're going to be considering a few verses in chapter 12, specifically chapter 12, verses 5 to 10. And I want us to consider these verses this morning, um, in these couple sermons this morning and next Sunday, uh, before we launch publicly with a kind of typical Easter message on April 5th. Uh, I, I want us to take these couple of Sundays, while it's kind of just us, family, and, and close friends of family, um, to consider a couple of things that may be our perspective setting for us. That, that may help us to set our mind in a particular frame, to, to sort of set our hearts on particular things, and maybe to, to take our minds off other things and take our hearts off other things that we might be, uh, as it were, by God's grace, free. One of the things that people can think about as a church plan is uh, how to be slick, how to be splashy, how to give the appearance of being powerful and great, and some other sort of extravagant promise. And when that happens, I think you set yourself up for any manner of disappointments, right? And one of the things that plants often struggle with is, is this sense of disappointment, whether it's uh, a small plant and someone like Ellis's are traveling this morning and they're in Atlanta and maybe the plant is so small that one family going away for the weekend is felt and is visible. And the planter gets a little disappointed. Or maybe it's, it's the music. You get feedback on the mic when you're praying or uh, that particular song didn't go correctly and it wasn't as you'd hope, wasn't as, as smooth and as moving or, or whatever it is that you like in your music. And a little disappointed. That, that sort of gap between hopes and expectations, particularly when we're hoping and promising really great things, that gap between that and what actually happens in the life of the church. Well, that, the, the bigger that gap, the bigger the, the sort of setup for potential disappointment. So as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, what I want to encourage us to do is to look at the greatest church planter of all time. I can't think of anybody who planted more churches in the scriptures than the Apostle Paul. I can't think of anybody who was more effective in evangelizing neighborhoods and, and gathering the newly converted into a, a church than the Apostle Paul. He had a great burden on himself to establish the church and encourage the church and to strengthen the church. And if there's anybody who could make great promises, it's the Apostle Paul. 
Because anyone who can boast of great things and perhaps expect great things is perhaps the Apostle Paul, certainly more than any of the pastors of ARC. And what I want us to see is Paul's perspective, the frame of mind that he places himself in, what he embraces as a church-planting apostle as he goes to the ends of the earth with the gospel. It might surprise us, but I hope it liberates us. Look with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll start reading in verse 5, and then we'll make three points, Lord, and we'll answer three questions. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I want to consider this morning the weak church plan. The weak church plan. I want to ask three questions of this main idea, this idea of weakness and power. Three questions. What do we think about being weak? What do we think about being weak? To answer that, we want to look at verses 5 and 6. The second question is, does God have a purpose in our weaknesses? Does God have a purpose in our weaknesses? Verses 7 through 9. And third question, why? With what, with what purpose should we embrace our weaknesses? Verses 9 and 10. Let's think about that first question. What do, we, what do we think about being weak? Well, most people today, you tell me if you think I'm wrong or right in this, uh, think basically that all weakness is bad, don't we? We can be impatient with the weak. We tend to hide our weaknesses, or when we can't hide them, we apologize for them. We get a little frustrated or maybe a whole lot angry if our weaknesses get in the way of something. And on the streets, right? In the alpha male games that guys play, we don't ever want anybody to think of us as, as weak, do we? Or maybe in the corporate boardroom. You don't want the, the person sitting across the table from you or the, the colleague promoting or, or, or seeking the same promotion. You, you don't give them a sense of, of any weakness, do we? We tend to think of weakness as almost categorically bad. 
But that's not the Bible's attitude toward weakness, and not in, the, not in this letter. In this part of Scripture, uh, the Apostle Paul, an early church leader, is writing to a church that he helped to found, that he established by the preaching of the gospel. Now, he's, since that time, left the church in Corinth, and he's gone on to, throughout the Middle East and, and various parts of that part of the world to preach the gospel and to plant other churches. And while he's been away, there's another group of leaders who come in behind him. They sort of regard themselves, as Paul says, as super apostles. And they're not like Paul. They're cut above Paul. And it seems that the way in which they are related to the Corinthians is they're trying to impress the Corinthians by how great they are how strong they are, how, how powerful they are, what, what extraordinary experiences they have had. And the striking thing is, even though Paul founded that church, the Corinthians have got kind of enamored with these new super apostles. And they've come to think of Paul as weak. And now Paul has to address them. Look back in chapter 11 there. Keep your finger in chapter 12 if you like. Look back in chapter 11 verses 12 to 15. See what Paul says there. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like the claim that in their boasted mission they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. Well, it's no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. You see, Paul is naming them plainly as, as, as really Satan's messengers, right? as deceitful apostles. And, they, and they're not on par with the true apostles of Christ, even though they're, they're boasting in this way. And in this section of the letter, Paul, this section is actually called Paul's foolish letter. Because, because if you go back to um, verse 16, and read all the way through chapter 12, chapter 11, verse 16, all the way through chapter 12, Paul is making it clear that boasting in our strength is really a foolish thing to do. Look at chapter 11, verse 16. He says, I repeat, let no one think me foolish, but even if you do, accept me as a fool that I too may boast the Lord. What I'm saying with this boastful confidence, I say not with the Lord's authority, but as a fool. Since many boast according to the flesh, I too will boast. For you gladly bear with fools, being wise yourselves. For you bear it if someone makes slaves in you, or devours you, or takes advantage of you, or puts on airs, or strikes you in the face. To my shame, I must say, we were too weak for that. You see the sarcasm in the letter? You see the tone striking? This boasting is foolishness. And yet, yeah, boasting leads to people taking advantage of you and even slapping you in the face, abusing the Lord's sheep. Well, yeah, we're too weak for that, Paul says. So what he wants to do is sort of help them to understand Christian ministry and what it rests on, whose power rest, it rests on. So skim the letter with me up to our text. Paul illustrates this foolishness, first of all, by boasting in his own background. You see it there in verse 21, the second part. Whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool now. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? 
So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Paul says, listen, if you want to boast in background, I can boast in background. I'm Hebrew of Hebrews. Right? I, I'm, I'm, if there was a magazine called Jewish Man Quarterly, I'd be on the cover. Right? And then he starts to move on in verse 23. He says, listen, I can not only boast in background, but I can boast in my weaknesses, in my sufferings. You see there? With countless beatings, far more imprisonments, far greater labors. And then in verse 23, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's a daily pressure on me and my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? You see, he's saying I can boast if I wanted to in all the things I have suffered for the gospel. Not just my ancestry and my pedigree, but my labors too. But notice one more thing. He can boast in. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on the visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Here's the great apostle Paul. Basically saying to the Corinthians, I could boast in the spiritual experiences I've had. Caught up into heaven. And I heard things there that it would just be profane for a man to utter, which man may not see. This experience so glorious, I don't know if I was in the body physically or, or if spiritually I was transported somewhere else. God knows. These are the kinds of things I could boast of if I were foolish, if I were a madman. So when we come to our text, it's with that backdrop that Paul begins to boast, not in his prowess, not in his strength, but in his weakness. Notice there what he tells us. Verse 5, on behalf of this man, this is Paul, when he's speaking of him in third person, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will, I will not boast except of, of my weaknesses. Again, this is this way of speaking. He's speaking of himself, but he's even, in the way he speaks of his great experiences, he's, he's sort of dividing himself, as it were, to put on one side these spiritual revelations that he's received, things that could be boasted of, and to sort of take his part on the other side with weaknesses. I won't boast of the first God, but if I have to boast, I'll, I'll boast in my own weaknesses. 
By weaknesses, Paul means a range of things. Things that we feel. His limitations, his sufferings, his failings, his, his faults. He means even the way he feels at the knowledge not only of his own sin, but the sins of others. He feels it all. He even means the kinds of things that are being said about him there in Corinth. That he's weak in person. That he's not among the great apostles. Even those kinds of insults are part of the weaknesses that he, he embraces here. And striking. The things that make others ashamed are the very things that Paul will allow himself to boast in. But notice how he responds. He's had such a great life. He's the greatest of all the apostles. He, he's traveled more. He's started more churches. He has written more of the New Testament. Why not tell others all about these great things that he's done? Look at verse 6. Paul says, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. Paul's Boasting, if he chose it, would be truth-telling. He would be saying real things that actually happened. But notice, truth is not reason enough to speak of ourselves. That something is true about us is not sufficient reason for us to gloom in it, or to brag about it, or to boast in it. And beloved, we can say true things that give a false impression, can't we? Really skillful to say the truth with just the right accent or just the right nonverbal. And take that kernel of truth, small in itself, and to suggest something much larger about ourselves. You ever had a conversation with someone who says, I read my Bible every day? It's maybe an evangelistic conversation, and it seems to you that the person doesn't understand the faith very well, and, and you ask them about something, so well, I, I read my Bible every day. They mean to be suggesting to you that somehow spiritually they're strong. But it's not evident in their life that their Bible reading makes a difference. You know, it's not evident in their conversation with you that they've understood what they have read. That they're saying something maybe that's true to just suggest something greater that isn't. Or to be having an evangelistic conversation with someone, you're talking to someone about the gospel, and they may say something, as my brother has said to me on occasion, you know, I say my prayers every day. Hmm, we're not really talking about your prayer life right now. But even if you thought about your prayer life for a moment, our brother's name is Pat, that's what we call him. Pat, what do you pray for? And every time we have this conversation, he tells me he prays essentially for the same thing. His prayer life is the repetition of his own desires. And that not in faith. So, so what is he suggesting by saying, I pray every day, which may be true, but then on closer inspection, we, we discover that that statement boasts of something that's not really there. And that's what Paul is concerned about. He's concerned that, that what he says about himself is in fact true of himself, and it's, it's accessible and verifiable, it's provable by those who are watching his life. So look at the rest of the verse there. He says, but I refrain. He says, I could boast and I wouldn't be a fool because I'd be telling the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. 
is principles. We don't want others to think more highly of us than the truth and humility required. We, we don't want others to think more highly of us than the truth and humility required. We don't want others to have an assessment of us they can't verify by our lives and by our teaching. So this is really, for Paul, a matter of integrity, isn't it? We don't want to be people who project an image, right? Who have other people think of us a certain way without us actually being what we're projecting. That's what entertainers do. That's what celebrities do. That's what, that's what rappers do, right? So you hear them on, on the album, Secular Rappers, and it's, you know, Bentleys and, 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 and all kinds of jewels and all kinds of riches. And you see them on, I don't know if this still come on, date myself now, Yo, Yo MTV Cribs. Let's still come on. No, but some of y'all know what I'm talking about. I old enough to know what I'm talking about. You see them on Yo MTV Cribs or something, and, and they're walking around this big mansion and ain't no furniture in it. <laughs> because they rent that joint. That ain't fair. You know, they, they can't afford it, really. But they boast upon it. That's, that's what the entertainers do. They create an impression. They project an impression. But when you inspect their lives, it's not there. And Paul says, that's not going to be true of me. I don't want anybody to think more highly of me than what they see in me and what they hear from me. As Christians, we want to close the gap between our image or reputation and our observable lived lives. We want to close the gap between what we do and what we say and, and what people actually see in us and can discover about us. We, we want what we say and do to match as closely as possible to who we really are. Verse 6 is Paul's way of saying, let's keep it real. Let's keep it real. And closing this gap between what we claim to be and what others see is how churches Avoid becoming a show. I don't know how many of you have been in churches that that feel like shows to you. And there may be really wonderful things happening, but there's there's this sense that you can even tell, okay, right about now, he's going to do this. Right? Right about now, this is going to happen. We came back to the States in July and began to visit churches, and my daughter's only having known their daddy's preaching. Y'all pray for them, all right? <laughs> only having known their daddy's preaching, we went to a few churches, and uh, we were watching one guy preach, and about the time he started tuning, ah, you know, and she could tell, here it comes. And, and she leans over to me, she says, does any practice that or something? <laughs> I said, yeah, down in the basement, baby. They, you know, they, they work on their hoop, right? This gap and widening the gap between what we really are and what we say and do about ourselves, that's how churches become hollow. That's how they become fake places with plastic people. That's how they become shows rather than real communities where God's love and power are seen and felt. So as a church family, being a, a, a weak church plant, right? We, we don't want our materials to promise explosive worship. That always sounded dangerous to me anyway. Right? <laughs> you know, where's the bomb? You know? 
And the old call is explosive worship. Right? We, we pray that God would genuinely meet with us and we would have a sense of his presence and commune with him. And then we don't want to advertise dynamic preaching, and they come here to me, right? Well, that's just false advertising, you know. We, we don't want to promise dynamic preaching. We, 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 we'd be happy to tell people we try to be faithful in the book. Uh, open it and teach it line upon line, and trust that God will bless His Word. And we don't want to make claims about reaching the community that are not verifiable. You know, we don't, we don't want to be turning into the denomination baptism statistics that can't be demonstrated in the, in the lives of people who are claiming to be members of this church. We, we don't want to boast that, that we have reached Anacostia or reached Southeast with the gospel. Anybody driving through the neighborhood can see, you know, there's a lot more reaching to do. And we don't want to offer hope to the community that depends upon us. We are powerless to save. We want to offer that real Savior who, is, who, who can save to the utmost the Scripture tells. But we don't want that. We want to close the gap between who we are and what we say about ourselves. And, and how does Paul do that? How does he avoid a false uh, reputation? It's in that word, refrains. He refrains from saying even true things if it would give the wrong impression. It's as if Paul puts a leash on his tongue. It may be that with those false apostles there, he really would like to say, hey, look, let me tell you about what a super apostle, let me tell you about what God has done in and through me. But no, he puts a leash on it and he restrains it. He, he pulls it back. He, he wants to muzzle the boasting so that they would see the difference in his life versus how these super apostles act. So he doesn't start a lot of sentences with I. He doesn't play one-upsmanship with them. He, he, he doesn't name drop in order to appear connected. Yeah, when I was in Jerusalem last week and saw Peter. <laughs> he doesn't inflate his stories or even tell the most fantastic aspects of his story. Here's a man taken up into heaven. He says, I can't even tell you about it. He refrains. It's better they think Paul is weak than they wrongly assume his strength. And the ARC family, it's better that people think we're weak than that we try to be winsome by boasting and other things. Because as we're going to discover, God has purposes in our weaknesses. Let's look at the second question. Does God have a purpose for our weakness? God has purpose in everything he does. We don't serve a God who was just kind of off that day and being lazy and, you know, just thought, well, whatever. No, God, God is running the universe according to his omniscience and his, and his good will. And everything happens, Ephesians 1, according to the purpose of his will. And that's true of the weaknesses that his people endure as well. So, in Paul's case, verse 7, God plans to use Paul's weakness to do one main thing. You'll see that at the beginning and the end of that verse. Paul writes, to keep me from being too elated. Well, you may have a translation that says, becoming conceited. You see there at the end of the verse as well, to keep me from becoming too elated or becoming conceited. In other words, God has a plan in Paul's weaknesses, and that plan, that purpose, is to keep Paul humble rather than proud. Because God hates pride. 
Bible tells us that God opposes the proud. Pride is the chief distinguishing mark of Satan. It's what caused his eviction from heaven, along with a third of the angels who, in like pride, fell with him. And God opposes pride in his people because we're, we're never quite like Satan, except that when we're swollen up, puffed up in pride. Because pride is that tendency in man to think of himself as increasingly God-like and in place of God. It's the way our hearts rebel against God's rule. And God has a holy hatred for it. He has a righteous disdain for pride in the creatures he created. So, God's purpose in Paul's weakness was to keep Paul from getting full of himself. Keep him from getting puffed up. To keep him from getting proud. And in verses 7 and 8, there are two methods that God uses in Paul's life and sometimes uses in our lives to keep us from being inflated. The first method God uses to keep Paul from pride is suffering. Is suffering. You see it there? Paul writes in the middle of verse 7, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. This is a marvelous comment, isn't it? We don't know exactly what the thorn in the flesh was. There are three views. Some people say it was a, a physical ailment because Paul says it was in the flesh. Other people say that it was persecution that Paul had suffered uh, because of his faith in Christ. The third view, perhaps uh, as strong as the first one, is others think it was some form of spiritual harassment because Paul here refers to this messenger of Satan. We don't know exactly what the thorn was, but there's no doubt that it hurt. There's no doubt that he suffered because of it. And there's no doubt of its source. It's a messenger of Satan. And Paul here faces demonic opposition that has physical effects. And it's because God willed it. Notice there where he says, a thorn in the flesh was given me. Who gave it to Paul? Where did it come from? You sort of step back from this and say, how, how does this happen in a great apostle's life? Well, who would have the most interest in Paul's humility? Who would have the most interest in his not being conceited and puffed up, but being humble? It's not Satan. It's God. And here's the ironic thing here. The demon of pride is used to keep the apostle from pride. The God here is so sovereign. We see him ruling over the, the activities of, of even the demonic realm and using the activities of the demonic realm not for what they want, but for the greater good purpose that he has in his people's life. So this thorn, which is a messenger of Satan, only operates according to the, the sovereign will of God. Listen to this and tell me if you think it's true. That unrelenting spiritual harassment may be God's means, His way, of keeping us from Satan's ways. Mm -hmm. 
But the spiritual warfare we sometimes have to engage, which comes through God's fingers into our lives, it may in fact be God's way of keeping us from devilish ways. And notice something here. In verse 7, Paul refers to this, this, the greatness of the revelation that he has received from God, being caught up into the third heaven. It's striking that because Paul has received great revelations from God, God also gives Paul great harassment to keep him humble. The greater God's revelation of Paul, the greater God's restraint of Paul. And the way that he restrains Paul here is by suffering. What does this mean for us? Well, I think it means at least every pain is not punishment for love. Not every pain is punishment. Have you ever thought that the most piercing trial or suffering that you've experienced just might be God's way of keeping you to himself? But it might be, as it were, God's holy arms embracing you and drawing you near and keeping you away from destruction. He's not rejecting you. He's protecting you. You see, God opposing the proud, we often hear that as a kind of judgment, and it is. But God opposing the proud is sometimes a grace, not a punishment. It's a kindness. Now, how does knowing that help you in your weakness? Help you in your suffering? Not all pain is punishment. Sometimes it's protection. Lord is drawing us near. And there's an application for the preacher. There's an application for the pastors as well, right? In all of this, pride in a messenger or a preacher is a particularly ugly problem. The one whose job is pointing people to God should have no fingers left to point to himself. Should always be pointing to God. And when the Lord shows a preacher favor, then the Lord commits himself to eliminating pride in the preacher's life. I mean, the greater the person's insight, like Paul's, into the revelation of God, into the word of God, the, the greater the need for protection from pride. That's why I love men like David Platt and John Piper. We're just watching them in their public ministry and watching them up close, and you see men who have a relentless opposition against pride in their life. To the point where a, a John Piper, for example, is incredibly nervous about applause. You know, and, and would rather just run off the stage and have people hear God's word for an hour and look to the greatness of Christ and then applaud. Not want to take any chance that the applause, any part of the applause, would be for him and not for Christ in some inappropriate way. That strikes me as right fundamentally, looking at 2 Corinthians 12 where Paul boasts in his weakness and has received this thorn that he might not be proud. So ARC, y'all pray for your pastors. Pray for me, pray for Jeremy, pray for Matt. No man is free from pride, and I am worse than most, I assure you. So please intercede for us, pray, pray for all of us, and pray for one another, that God would keep us from pride and keep us from being puffed up. And if it pleases him, and it sanctifies us, he would even use our pain. He would even use our pain to keep us humble.
and keep us near to him. That's one of the methods he used. The second method is in verse 8. Did you see that there? Paul not only uses pain, but Paul uses, or God not only uses pain, but God also uses prayer to keep Paul humble. And specifically, he uses unanswered prayer. So to put it a better way, God answers prayer in a different way than Paul would like. Verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should lead me. And whatever this going is, Paul understands that God can take it away. And so he asked three times. And, and whatever the story is, it must really hurt because Paul asked. He pleads, that's a strong word, with the Lord three times in prayer. So Paul is pleading in prayer and God is silent. This favorite apostle, this greatly used apostle, is asking God to take away this pain. The one, if you look through Paul, back to Christ and see glimpses of Gethsemane, can't you? For the Lord pleaded three times, let this cup of wrath pass from me. And having closed itself up in silence, here the Apostle Paul is, Lord, take away this thorn, take away this thorn, take away this thorn, and, and God refuses to. And we have to ask ourselves, what would happen to Paul if God had taken away the thorn It was highly likely that Paul would have become conceited. God had given a thorn to keep him from that. If he removed the thorn, that swelling and elation, very likely, isn't it? The very thing that God hates and is trying to keep the apostle from would have been the result that God had answered the way Paul had been. It's worth sometimes asking ourselves, I think, beloved, what unforeseen bad thing might happen to me if God were to grant this request? Now, truth in advertising. I didn't think about that question until I was working on this text. <laughs> I don't want you to think more of me than is actually true of me. But it struck me working on this text that as I pray and I formulate the prayer request, and particularly as I get so bold and confident as to ask for a particular answer, I might want to stop and also say, oh Lord, unless granting this is going to leave me worse off than not. Which, which, is, which is the way Jesus ended his prayer in Gethsemane. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And so Paul has learned this lesson that, that he prays and he pleads and God removes, does not remove the thorn and sometimes he doesn't answer our, our questions, our, our, our prayers because he actually knows what the outcome is going to be. And sometimes what we ask for is worse for us than the pain we're enduring. You know, unanswered prayer is sometimes how God does more for us than we can imagine. God sometimes does more for us by giving less to us. Sometimes God's refusals come when we're hurting the most, don't they? And when that happens, it's because worse things than our pain, like pride, could result. And so, beloved, in this way, unanswered prayer from God is actually grace from God. And God uses his silence for answering differently, Paul, 
as a means of protecting Paul from pride. Paul did receive an answer. You see it in verse 9. He prays three times, and apparently it comes back to him. God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. But we don't hear from God out loud or have these revelations the way the Apostle Paul did. That was unique in biblical history. But the answer God gave Paul is no less for us than it was for Paul. This answer is a good reason, beloved, for us to even think about how many times we ask God for this thing. You ever ask yourself why Paul pleaded three times and no more? Maybe it's because the answer came after the third prayer. Or maybe the answer came with each time he asked. But Paul seems to accept God's answer here, that his grace is sufficient for him. And that really is the difference between anxious prayer, which really isn't anxious at all, it's just worrying before, or prayer at all, it's worrying before God, and a prayer of prayer. <laughs> An anxious prayer, I don't know, maybe you're like me, you, you prayed to God for some things, you wanted some things from God, and you felt your weaknesses, and that just seemed to prompt the prayer all the more, and, and you just kept praying, and you just kept praying, and you just kept praying, and all you could be consumed with in your prayer life was that one request that you, you kept making, you kept making, you kept making. It might be that that's just actually spiritual hand-wringing before God. Not faith. You see, Paul pleads three times. And he accepts God's answer. My grace is sufficient for you. And we go into prayer knowing that, don't we? That God's grace is sufficient for us. And sometimes it's better to embrace our weakness in prayer and leave it with the Lord. And to go on in the faith that he provides. He has promised to us that everything we need, Matthew 6, as we seek his kingdom and his righteousness, he will provide for us. This unanswered prayer leaves Paul with an unremoved thorn. And Paul interprets that as grace from God. And if we're going to be that kind of church plant which embraces weakness, we've got to embrace our thorns. And we've got to accept that it's grace from God. Whatever the suffering, whatever the pain, if we suffer like Christians, Peter says, we, we understand that this has come from God and it will be good for us and God will be sufficiently gracious to us. Here's another question to ask yourself about Paul before we move to our, our last question. Does this thorn Stop Paul from serving God? It doesn't, does it? He hurts. He pleads in prayer. But he keeps serving the Lord. He keeps serving the Lord. And it's the next couple of verses that illustrate why. I've been trying to encourage us to embrace our weaknesses as a church plant and as people plant in the church and a new community among new people. And there are two reasons why in this text, verses 9 and 10, that ultimately I want to offer to us as reasons for why we should make this embrace, why we should delight and boast in our weaknesses. The first is what we just said a moment ago. God's grace is sufficient for us in our weakness. You see that there in verse 9. 
But the second part of the verse tells us why. It tells us why this grace is sufficient, and it's because God's power is perfected in our weakness. God's power that we're perfected is made complete. It is mature. It blossoms. Not when we're strong and self-sufficient, but when we're broken and contrite. When we are weak, maybe bowed over. When we're hurting, that's when God's is made complete in the lives of his people. But that word grace is just another word for kindness. In particular, it's the way God is kind to us when we don't deserve it. Somebody ever wronged you? And instead of getting back at them for the wrong they've done, you were kind to them? You may be surprised yourself. Walk away from that thing, man, I can't believe I just spoke to her the way she talked about me again. That was grace. That was kindness. That was treating them better than they deserved based upon how they treated you. And that's what's happening in this word between us and God. God treats us better than our sins deserve. He's being kind to us even though in many ways we have failed him and rebelled against him. He's a gracious God. He's kind to us. And his grace, notice, is, present tense, sufficient. Right now. In whatever struggle, in whatever pain, in whatever suffering, right now, his grace is enough. His kindness will be sufficient. It, it won't be lacking. You won't come up short when it comes to God's grace. There will there'll be no gap between the, the kindness you need and the, and the pain that you're suffering. You, you will always experience with God kindness enough to carry you through. It'll be sufficient. And the reason is, God tells us, is because he has a stake in our weakness while we are weak in showing the perfection and maturing the perfection of his power. Let me put it a different way. God shows his power in us best when we have our strength at its least. When we are weak, then God is strong. And when we are weak, then the power of God is manifest and seen for what it is. There's no confusion about where it came from. There's no confusion about who gets the credit for it. There's no confusion about whether or not it'll work because it's not our power. It's not our strength. It's not our wisdom. It's not our self-effort. It's God working in and through us while we are weak. And this is why God loves weak people. He loves the weak people, not the self-reliant. Because then his power is manifest. His power comes through. And you see that in verse 9? That's why Paul says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Who wants to live in God's power? That rest upon me. It's a rare word in the New Testament. It has the idea of living in. Who wants to live in the power of God? Paul is saying, the Bible is saying, God is saying to us in the Bible through Paul, the way you live in my power is you boast in your weakness. You embrace your infirmities. You hug tight 
all of the, the failings and inadequacies that you feel. And, and you boast in those, you glory in those, because when you tell other people about your weakness, oh, then, then I'm going to manifest my power. You'll live in my power. The only time you step outside the house of God's power is when you step out to boast about yourself. Get that boasting. Come inside and rest in God's strength by embracing your weakness. That's the strange, counterintuitive way God works with his people. And if we think about Jesus, that wouldn't surprise us, would it? Maybe you're here and you're new to what God has done for you in Jesus. You haven't had that explained to you before. And you wonder why someone crucified on a cross and killed would be worshipped as God. Well, the cross is that place where God demonstrates in his son precisely what we're talking about. Here is the Son of God who has been God from all of eternity, who has all power in his hand. He is omnipotent as God. And yet he wraps himself in human flesh. He takes upon himself our weakness. And he not only lives and walks in our weakness, but you know what he does? He, he experiences the ultimate form of weakness. That is death. He gives up his life. He is nailed to a cross by the people he made. So weak he would become. And he would die. And he would remain dead three days. But then comes power. The power of God raised him from the grave. He was resurrected to life again. And, and in his resurrection, he's, he's resurrected with all power. And, and the mystery of the cross is opened up for us in that moment of self-giving, in that moment of giving himself up for others, in that moment of excruciating weakness when he was being crucified for sinners, and being punished for our sin, there was God's power being revealed to save sinners. In the weakness of the Son of God is displayed the power of God to save people who were dead in their sins. To save people who were boasting in themselves. To save people who were proud about their lives and, and proud even in the face of God and rebelling against God in their pride. In the weakness of the Son of God crucified on the cross is the display of the power of God to save us from sin. Beloved, if you're here this morning and you didn't know that and you thought the cross was a, a weird thing or a foolish thing or a demonstration of weakness, oh, I pray you see it for what it really is. It is a demonstration of power and love and grace and mercy. Because God was punishing his son instead of us. And God raised his son from the grave that he might raise us too. That we would live with him in this newness of life through faith in his son. And God calls people everywhere to do two things. These two things are the opposite sides of the same coin. He calls us to repent of our sins 
and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior and our substitute who took the punishment for our sins and our God who was raised from the grave to rule in righteousness. To repent simply means to turn away from your sin and to turn toward God. It is to admit your weakness. It is to admit your failings. It is to admit your rebellion and your disobedience to God. To agree with God that when I have not obeyed you, I have been wrong. And because I was wrong, I deserve your punishment. And to turn away from the wrong. And to turn toward God and to believe God that, that the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was crucified for your sins, that crucifixion counts for you. That punishment that was laid upon him was, was, was done for you. And then his resurrection, his rising from the grave, well, that, was, that too was done for you. So that, so that you would be justified before God. You would be declared righteous before God. God calls everyone, every human being, to turn from their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. To confess their weakness and turn to their power and be saved. And if you're here this morning and you have never done that, even now, you may do that and God will save you. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Confess your sins to him and turn your back on your sin. And say, God, all of my hope, all of my hope, both now and forever, rest upon Christ your Son. And you promised God, if I trusted Him and followed Him in the obedience that comes from faith, you would save me. You would forgive all my sins. You would cleanse me of every sin. You would make me righteous in your sight. And I would be yours and you would be mine. Now and forever. If you're weak enough to confess your sins, God is strong enough to save you from them. Trust in Him. And Christian, this is for us to walk into, to boast in our weaknesses. This is, this is true for us, not just when we come to Christ for the first time. This is, this is true for us for the rest of our Christian lives. And we get to walk in this boasting in our weaknesses and to live in God's power. And this is an invitation for us to keep coming to Christ and to, and to not stop coming to Christ. You know, there's a sneaky little thing that grows up in our hearts, isn't it, called self-reliance. We get to doing okay for a little while, and we get to forgetting that we're weak, you know, and we start stepping out in our own strength, and we discover, boom, when that truck hits us, we weren't really that weak. Now, the interesting thing is, when we get hit by that truck and we make that discovery, you know what we're tempted to do? ourselves up by bootstraps, get strong again, and go out in our own strength until the next truck hits us. When what we should do, lying in the street when that truck is plowed over us, is cry out on our backs or on our faces, God, I'm so weak. I've done this again. I failed you again. And the failure wasn't just this particular action. The failure was ever forgetting that you was my strength. Oh, God, I'm so glad that when I'm weak, you're strong. And I'm so glad that your grace is sufficient for me laying right here in the street right now, having been run over by life. That's how we know whether or not we understand grace. It's what we do when we discover our sin, whether we hide or whether we go to God. 
we get to live in this. We get to live in our weakness and see God's power. And that's what we want to embrace. Let me give you the last reason we want to embrace this really quickly. It's right here in verse 10. It's because Christ will be glorified if we do this. This is our heart as Christians, is that our Savior would be magnified, that he would be praised, that he'd be made much of. You see how verse 10 starts there? For the sake of Christ. That's just a little paragraph, that's a little phrase there that means for the, for the name of Christ, for the glory of Christ, for the renown of Christ. And then notice what, notice what Paul says. He says, for the sake of Christ, what does he do then? I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. But when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And again, it's so tempting to observe our hearts and our attitudes toward verse 10. We, we, we read verse 10, I think, often. But if we don't read verse 10 soberly, then we live our lives in kind of the negative of verse 10. I'm dating myself here a little bit. Some of you will remember the days when you took pictures and you had to develop a film. And there was something called a negative, right? Where all the bright spots were actually dark, and the dark spots were bright, right? Or the colors in the film were actually their, their complements, right? Until you developed a film, and it was like it sort of came out the way it was supposed to. I think verse 10 is kind of a negative to natural man. But we read this without, without thinking about it deeply, and I'm not sure we believe it. So we read it and it says something like this, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with strength, compliments, ease, popularity, and blessings. For when I am blessed in everything, then I am strong. And there's a whole form of so-called Christian teaching that teaches precisely that. But that's not what the text says. We can be so tempted to think that weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities are signs of God's disapproval or signs of His forgiving us. And so we want to avoid those things like the plague. And we complain when they happen to us because we, we've reversed verse 10. Even if we didn't know we were doing that. And consequently, we don't live in God's power or honor Christ in weakness. But if in our weaknesses we rejoice in Christ, and we trust God's sovereign plans for us, then Christ is honored. And I would suggest to you that's, that's, that's all that contentment means there. That the resolve to trust God's sovereign plan even when life isn't going as planned. Right? So he says, I'm, I'm content, notice, in weaknesses and insults and hardships, in persecutions and calamities. Why? We understood verse 9. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As we worship Christ in weakness, then others see that he is more valuable to us than our advantages and our strength. They see that Jesus is worth it no matter what's going on in our lives. And that's why Paul writes, for the sake of Christ then, I'm content I'd rather boast in them for the value and beauty and dignity of Christ is magnified when God's people go broken, bless his name. And I think the Lord wants us to be that kind of community. 
people who minister out of their brokenness, not out of their strength. The kind of community where confession is natural. The kind of community where the admission of weakness is ordinary. And the kind of community where we don't despise weakness. We're not angry or impatient at brokenness. But we see in it the promise of this text. That when we are weak, Christ is strong. God be magnified in our weakness. Jesus is honored when his power is displayed in our trembling and our frailty. He is honored when his power is displayed in our inability. To be a powerful church and to be powerful church planters, we must boast not in our strengths, but in our weaknesses. The whole world will be able to see Christ more clearly if we are out of the way with our delusions about strength. So let us go into the community. Let us call them to come see a weak church and behold a powerful God. Let's pray. Father, even now, we are tempted to close our Bibles and adjust ourselves in our seats and prepare to do the next thing and to do it in self-reliance. Even now, we may, forgetting the word, have conversations with our neighbors and our friends and our brothers and sisters at ARC. And, and we may go quickly to the presentation of strength. And we may pretend that everything is normal. But in fact, Lord, we feel our weaknesses. So if we stop long enough to meditate on pain that we have encountered this past week or this past month, we stop, oh Lord, to see the brokenness that we have caused in ourselves or in others. Oh Lord, we would have plenty of weaknesses to observe. Make that cause not for shame. Make that cause for plenty of reasons to boast in your grace, in your cross, in your love. Make us good stewards of our weakness, Lord. Pray that we would handle our weakness with faith and not with fear. Grant we would be wise about sharing our weaknesses with, with others who you call in Galatians 6 to bear our weaknesses and burdens with us. So give us trusted brothers and sisters to whom we can disclose the inadequacies of our lives. And grant us, Lord, as we forget ourselves and surrender ourselves and, and boast as Paul did in your weakness. Oh Lord, grant us to discover in fresh and <coughs> ways that we are living in your power. Let your power rest upon us. In the home as we take care of children. Lord, keep us from pretending that we are forever perfect children. Keep us from being self-righteous parents. Let us boast in our weakness. Confess our failures against our kids and to our kids. Lord, let us boast in our weaknesses in the workplace. Lord, keep us from the rat race and from the politicking that happens so much 
in offices in this city. Well, let us put it away and let us rather gladly accept the, accept the stabs and pains, the, the thorns in the flesh that you have put in our workplace so that your power will be seen. And in the community among our neighbors, well, as we reach out to them in love in the coming weeks and invite them to come worship with us and as we tell them of a great Savior, keep us, O Lord, from in any way giving them the impression that we are more than what we are. But let us only state those things that they are able to see in us and to hear from us that are also true and yet bring you glory. Not unto us, O Lord. Not unto us. But to your name be all the glory. And if that requires our weakness, make us glad about it. Amen. We pray this, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.